Welcome, welcome. Another Tuesday. Uh, just a reminder that uh, next Tuesday will be our last Tuesday for our summer Bible study. But then the mine fall semester will start back up Tuesday, August the 19th. So we'll take a couple of weeks off after next week. And then we'll start back up on August 19th. Hey, uh, real quick, just a uh, prayer request. Uh, if you guys uh, think about uh, this weekend, if you would remember my wife and I, we'll be in Dallas, Texas this weekend speaking. Uh, my wife will be speaking to a group of women. I'll be speaking to a group of men. And I'll be speaking in a church there in Dallas on Sunday. And uh, I'll be back before next Tuesday. In fact, that'd be a prayer request, okay? Because the last time I flew a couple weeks ago, I got stuck in Baltimore and didn't think I was going to make it to Phoenix for a couple days. So pray that our plane gets out of Dallas on Monday so that I can be here Tuesday evening. So that would be a really good prayer request. Yeah, yeah. At least uh, Dolly will have went through Texas and be there. So anyway... Um, Thank you guys for being here tonight. We're going to dive into 2 Timothy chapter 3 here in just a moment. And before we do, let's just uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together tonight. God, thank you again for meeting with us here tonight. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for his teaching ministry in our lives. And Lord, how he just illuminates and, and brings out to us the truth of your word. And God, I just pray that each of us tonight would, after we navigate this chapter together tonight, would just realize once again um, how important it is to be committed to the Word of God. Not just to hear it and read it and study it, but Lord, to live it. To let the Word of God truly transform our lives from the inside out. And I even pray tonight that as we have come here tonight, that, Lord, we would not leave this building the same person uh, as when we came in, but, Lord, we would allow your Holy Spirit to just do a work in our lives. Thank you again for meeting with us here tonight. May you be honored and glorified by all that is said and done, and we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 3. We are continuing our study in 2 Timothy, a book, a letter that Paul writes, his last letter, at least it is in Scripture, before he dies. It is a letter of unbelievable encouragement to young Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus who is about ready to throw in the towel, to give up, to faint, uh, and Paul is wanting to write this letter to Timothy knowing that hopefully this letter will not just encourage Timothy, but will encourage Christians down through the ages. And hopefully the last couple of weeks that you've been here, you have been encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. A couple things I want to say tonight by way of introduction. Um, a theme of 2 Timothy 3 would be watch out for your associations in life. Watch out who you associate with. Watch out who you attach yourself to or what you attach yourself to. Because one of the primary 
reasons for having that strength of God to continue moving forward and continuing to persevere and endure in this life, no matter what we face, is having the right associations in our life and attaching ourselves to the right people and to the right things. And that's what Paul's going to remind Timothy of in this chapter tonight. I just want to start out here in verse 1 because I want to spend a little bit of time on this verse. It sort of sets up everything else in the chapter. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1, But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. First of all, Paul, nor God, paints any kind of rosy picture about life on earth as we approach the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What God does want his people to know is this. Yes, we are going to be living in uniquely challenging days in history. In fact, we're going to read tonight that the Bible basically teaches that as we get closer to the return of Christ, there are going to be more and more unique challenges to being alive on this planet and as a Christian, living as a Christian in the days in which we live, and making an impact for Christ. But, to encourage all of us, let's remember that the God who is allowing us to live through this time also is the God who can help us to rise above the days in which we live and give us the strength that we need and everything that we need in order to make a positive impact in this world. Going back to last week, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul encouraged Timothy to be Jesus strong, to allow the strength of God to to inhabit our lives, that if we are Jesus strong, then it doesn't matter what the future holds, it doesn't matter what the future brings, it doesn't matter what the days are going to be like, because whatever we are going to face, compared to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is greater than anything we will ever face. And therefore, if you and I as Christians begin to build that relationship with our Savior Jesus and gain from that relationship, it doesn't matter what the days ahead are like. If we're Jesus strong, as we learned about last week, we will be able to tackle those problems, we will be able to deal with those situations no matter what they are. The other thing I think that Paul is trying to encourage Timothy with is this. We don't know all that the future holds. We don't know exactly what our future is going to be like, what our country's future is going to be like, what our world is going to be like. We're going to get a little bit of a picture about what the world is going to be like as we approach the return of Christ, but not a lot of specifics. But the one thing that God wants his children to realize is this. We may not know all the specifics about what the future holds, but we know the God who holds that future in his hands. And therefore, we can face confidently and with assurance and with boldness what the future holds because we know that God is going to be there. And he has purposed a plan for this world and he is moving this world towards the ultimate 
consummation of his plan. And we can be confident of that. And that's why Paul wants Timothy to understand what he's about to say. The word understand there, or the word recognize, it can also be translated mark out. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, I'm getting ready to talk to you about some pretty heavy stuff. It's going to be pretty intense. It's pretty intense now for us, but it's only going to get more intense to live for Christ as we approach and get closer to the return of Christ. And so basically I think what Paul's saying to Timothy and and even more now saying to us some 2,000 years later is we as Christians have to sort of wake up every day and to use a a sports metaphor, we've got to put on our A game every day. Why? Because we're living in challenging times. And we as Christians just can't be lazy and and, uh, neglect our spiritual responsibilities and put our life with God on cruise control and just, you know, relax. We have to step up And we have to be very spiritually diligent and understand the times in which we live. We cannot take the days in which we live lightly, is what Paul's saying. It's just like a sports team who may have more talent than this other team that they're playing, but they take them lightly. They, you know, in their mind, we we don't need to bring our A game today. We can just walk on the field and we can beat them. And anyone who follow sports know that down through sports there have been many teams who've been upset by a weaker opponent because they didn't take them seriously enough and Paul is simply saying here to Timothy Timothy as a Christian we need to take the days in which we live seriously because they are intense times and they are not times that we should fear they are not times that we should shrink back from they are times that we should step up and and challenge because we are Jesus Christ strong and Jesus Christ will give us all the strength that we need to face the challenges of the days in which we live that's why he says again in verse 1 understand this Timothy that in the last days difficult times will come first of all I want to define the term last days in the Bible last days describes any time between the first coming of Christ in Bethlehem and his second coming So in a sense, we've been living in the last days, biblically speaking, for a couple thousand years. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, says, God, in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son. And ever since Jesus Christ came the first time, we are living in the last days. But according to the Bible, even though we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return, we certainly, according to the Bible, can know the season And I believe we are living in the last of the last days before Jesus comes. Notice he describes the last days as difficult times, perilous times, challenging times. Very interesting, the word that is used there is only found one other place in the scripture and it's used to describe the violence of demonic possession and activity. And it implies to us that one of the reasons why the last days are going to be challenging and perilous and difficult is because they're going to get more and more violent. And that a lot of this violence, if not most of this violence that we see in the world today, is going to be energized 
by demonic forces. It does not take the responsibility away from the human beings who allow themselves to be demonically influenced, but much of the violence we see today is demonically energized. And we are living in a more and more and more violent world. It's not just that there are more people in the world. It's not just that we have news coverage in order to be able to know about all the violence. It is that there is an intense, growing, violent world that we live in. And Paul says to Timothy, mark it down. Recognize this, Timothy. We need to meet the challenges of this unique world that we're going to be living in. In fact, then beginning in verse 2... He gives Timothy 19 characteristics of the way people are going to be in the last days. Now again, remember, they were this way in Paul and Timothy's day, but then the Bible teaches that as we approach the time of Christ's return, it's only going to get worse. In fact, before we get into these character qualities, because I want us to just look at them briefly tonight... Go over to chapter 3 and verse 13. Notice Paul says to Timothy over in verse 13, evil people, people who actually pursue evil, they think about how they can be evil, and charlatans, magicians, tricksters, hucksters, will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. There again is another verse that basically teaches as we get further on into human history, it's only going to get worse. Now again, please, God does not give us this information to discourage us, to make us throw up our hands and go, wow, well then just forget it. It's too hard. No, just the opposite of what Paul's trying to get Timothy to see. Timothy, First of all, recognize that it's sort of cool that we're living in the days in which we live because they are such a unique challenge, and yet God, through Christ, has given us everything we need to meet the unique challenges of the days in which we live. So back to verse 2. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about these because they're pretty self-explanatory, but at the end, I'm just going to make a couple of general comments. First of all, people will be lovers of themselves, self-centered, narcissistic, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers. The word literally in the original is abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, or literally heartless or without a heart, irreconcilable. They will not compromise at all it's either their way or the highway slanderers the original word there is diaboloi a word that is used for the devil who is the ultimate slanderer or accuser without self-control savage or brutal opposed to what is good treacherous literally they love to betray others To draw people into their confidence and then to betray them. Reckless or rash, conceited or puffed up, loving pleasure rather than loving God, they will maintain the outward appearance of religion but will have repudiated its power. Couple things. First of all, 
Paul spends a lot of time in that list of 19 characteristics of the last days talking about the character of people. And make no mistake about it, the Bible basically is teaching the reason why the days in which we live as we approach the return of Christ are going to be more perilous, more difficult, more challenging is because of the character of human beings on this planet. Or maybe I should say it this way, the lack of character across the globe. That there will be this devoid of character in people and that's what's going to cause the problems. That's why many people, you know, one of their objections to Christianity or to faith is, well, if God exists and if he's such a great God and he's such a powerful God and he's such a loving God, how can he allow all this evil to go on in the world? Well, we've got one of two choices. Either God made us robots and made us all do exactly what he wanted us to do all the time, or as the Bible teaches, he gave human beings a free will. And with that free will that we all like and enjoy so much, we've got to realize that there is a flip side to having free will. And that is that people can have a free will to hurt other people. Because of their lack of character, they will use their lives and what they have to cause a lot of evil in this world rather than a lot of good. That's part of the reason why the church plays such a vital role in the days in which we live and only plays a more important part as we get closer to the return of Christ. Because we need to show people Christ and that he is ultimately the one that can build Christ-like character into our lives. The fruit of the Holy Spirit and can make us a, a person totally unlike what we are reading about here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll also notice that he really emphasizes love. He talks about the fact that people will love themselves, they will love money, they will be unloving and heartless, and they will love pleasure more than they will love God. In a sense, what, what God is picturing here is as we approach the return of Christ, people have everything upside down. Because the Bible teaches that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet in the world in which we live, it's just the opposite. People aren't loving God and they aren't loving others. They're loving themselves and they're loving money and they're loving pleasure. And make no mistake about it, God is not asking us to choose as human beings whether we want God or we want pleasure because if we would truly embrace God in our lives, we would experience the greatest pleasure that we could ever imagine. God is simply saying that if you feel like you have to choose between pleasure rather than God, that's the kind of people that exist for the most part on the planet. And God said it shouldn't be that way. As a Christian, I should worship God, love people, and use things. But many people in this world today, their prescription of living is, I worship myself, I neglect God, I use people, and I love things. And that is a life prescription that will bring disaster, heartache, and no fulfillment in your life. And that's exactly what Paul is reminding Timothy of here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Another one though that I felt like, especially as a pastor, and we're here at church and we're, we're talking about all of this, that verse 5 is really an important verse and yet a very sobering and solemn verse. 
because it reminds us that part of the characteristic of the last days is that people will be religious on the outside. As Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. And there will be this outward form of religion. But notice what he says, no power. A powerless religion. Can I just tell you that when God is involved with something, when God is in something, when God is truly in a person's heart, when God is in the life of a church, when God exists in a home, there is power there. Because God cannot exist in a place and there be no spiritual power going on. That's why 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul said, the kingdom of God is not in idle talk, it's in power. And yet in the world in which we live, there's going to be a growing religion where people look religious on the outside, but when you scratch the surface and get beyond the surface, there's no real power there in their lives. A powerless religion is one of the characteristics and marks of the last days. People can get religious, folks, but it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ, the God of this universe, is in your life and my life, there will be power there. A power that God wants us to tap into, a power that God wants us to demonstrate, so that it's not us, but it's him. And how much activity and service and ministry takes place with Christians all over this world that have nothing to do with spiritual power. It's their wisdom, it's their intellect, it's their power, it's their strength. It's one of the things that we have to be careful of. That even as we minister and serve the Lord, that we're not doing it in our own power and strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, keep your finger there in 2 Timothy 3. I'm sorry, I just I got, got going here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were all about outward appearance, externals, ritual, religion, how it looks to other people, but there was no heart there. There was no reality there. It was all what was on the outside, but there was no inward reality there. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God. For I decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Paul said, if I came to you and, you know, I was this articulate speaker and Man, I just, I could hold a crowd and it was all because of my communication skills and all of this kind of stuff. He said, where's the spirit in that? 
He said, instead, I came to you in weakness and in trembling because I wanted whatever ministry or service I did in your midst to be a demonstration of the Spirit and what God can do, not what Paul could do. And that should be the goal of all of our lives as Christians. That even as we serve and minister for the Lord, it's not, wow, people look at us and go, look what, look what they can do. It's look what God can do. And God should get the glory for it. And that's part of where the problem is in the church today overall in this world. Is there are too many human beings who want people to look at them and they want the glory rather than to reflect and give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a powerless religion. Go a little bit deeper than an inch on that surface and there's really nothing there. And notice back then to 2 Timothy chapter 3, because we talked about the importance of our attachments and our associations, notice at the very end of verse 5 what Paul tells Timothy to do. He says, avoid people like these. Avoid them. Why? Because if we begin to attach ourselves to these kind of people, the people that are described in these first five verses, especially verse 5, they're going to influence us and drag us down and pull us away from where we need to be. That's why we need the right kind of people in our life. And listen, it's not that God's Word is not telling us to have no association with people who don't know Christ or even people who do know Christ but are living this way. But he is telling us, be very careful, be very cautious. Are we providing more of an influence on them or are they providing more of an influence on us? Are we bringing them closer to God or are they dragging us further away from God? And we have to be very careful about our attachments in this life and our associations because it's going to go one of two ways. Either they're going to be willing to follow us towards Christ and towards becoming more like Christ, or we're going to end up following them away from God. And Paul told Timothy, you better avoid people like these. Because of their lack of character, they're not the kind of people that you want to be attaching yourself to. You can associate with them. They can even be in your church, Timothy, and come to your church. But don't get too close to them, Timothy, because they're going to be a negative influence in your life with God. Notice he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, some of these people worm their way literally into households, captivate weak women who are overwhelmed with sins and led along by various passions, such women are always seeking instruction, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. First of all, ladies, don't lose me here. And don't begin to think that Paul is bashing women again, because that's not true. That's not in the Bible. Paul is talking about a specific instance in Ephesus that both he and Timothy knew about. He's not saying that the only ones susceptible to being duped by these false teachers are women. In fact, the implication is that many times 
It was the men who were the false teachers and the deceivers. And we've already seen from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, that they're being deceived. So it's not just that women are deceived. Men can be deceived just as easily as women. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. In fact, I just want to, since we're there, just quickly go back to verse 13. I want you to see this, because I won't touch on it later when we get there. That part of the principle from God's word is this. If I seek to deceive somebody else, I end up being deceived myself. Error propagates itself. And so if I'm a false teacher, and I bought into the lies of Satan, and I'm listening to what Satan has to say, then I'm being deceived by the great liar, the great deceiver. Even as I deceive others with my life and with my lips, I'm also being deceived myself. I'm being duped by Satan. But what he is saying back in verse 6 and 7 is this. He is saying, here again is a characteristic we have to be careful of. That there are those people in their life who have made such bad decisions in their life and they have rebelled against God and against His Word and they have fallen into this deep pit. And these teachers come along who promise them, as we've already seen in other places in the Word of God, liberty and freedom, even though they themselves are enslaved enslaved to sin. And they have quick, easy solutions to their multiple life problems. And they promise them all these things even though they really can't deliver anything, you see. And these people are gullible. They are ripe for this. Because they're looking for any answer, any solution out there that they can cling to because they're desperate. And when people are desperate, they will make desperate decisions and they will do desperate things. People who are involved in cults, they know exactly who to look for to approach and start up a conversation. They are trained who to look for, who to go after, who to target, who their target audience is. And Paul says, be careful, Timothy, and warn others. Because notice what he says at the end of verse 6. These people, women and men alike, can get to the point where they are overwhelmed with their sin. And they are so controlled by their passion and their lust that they're looking for any answer out there possible, even if it's a wrong answer. It's something. It's something that they can cling to, something that they can attach themselves to. The problem is when they attach themselves to anything other than the truth, they still have their problems, and yet they're told everything's going to be all right. Like the prophet Jeremiah said back in Jeremiah chapter 6, one of the problems in Israel with the false prophets in the Old Testament where they've told everybody in Israel, everything's going to be all right. And Jeremiah said, everything's not all right. Everything's not all right. It's just like, let me use this as an illustration, because this is pretty common in the United States over the years. It's like diets. People want to lose weight. They have tried everything they can to get on top of of their weight and and losing weight. And what do many people throughout 
the history of our country do. Every new diet, every new book that comes down the pike, well, maybe this will work. I tried that for a while. That worked for a while, but then... uh, So it's always, and that's why these people are always putting out, this is the new diet, this is the new way to lose weight, this is the new way to get in shape. And we've got places like Barnes & Noble that are filled with the next new thing. Because people that feel like, "I, I can just never get on top of this, and so I'm just waiting for that next new nugget to come along that may be the answer to my problem. And they latch on to it. And the reason they latch on to it is because of the condition that they find themselves in. In fact, notice in verse 7, very sad. He says, look, it's not like they don't want to learn. It's not like they don't want to read the next book or go to the next seminar or hear the next solution to their problem. They're always eager to learn, seeking instruction. Yet notice this, verse 7, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. How sad. They never get to a place in their life where they, it hits them, Jesus Christ is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he's all I need. And I just need to embrace him. I just need to sink my roots down into him. He's the answer. I don't need to move past Jesus. I don't need to add Jesus to all these other things. He's all that I need. He's all that I'll ever need. And once I have established that, I'm good. But even for many Christians today, Jesus Christ to them is something that they add into their life with all these other things. And Jesus Christ really isn't sufficient for every need in their life. He's just one more thing that they tack on to their life. And they're never really able to just settle on Jesus Christ and learn that all that they need is found in Him. Colossians says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You and I don't need to travel anywhere else other than to Jesus. And when we find Jesus, we don't need to be looking for anyone or anything else. He's all that we need. We are complete in Him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. The key, too, in verse 7 is the truth. <laughs> I, I've got to get to a point where I realize Jesus Christ is the truth. And so there's no reason to go past Jesus. There's no reason to add anything else to Jesus because He's the truth. And once I understand that and I acknowledge it and I embrace it and I apprehend it, then I'm set, I'm rest, I'm at rest, I'm settled. Then it's just a matter of learning all that there is in Jesus for me. Then in verse 8, he mentions two, I believe, magicians that opposed Moses back in the book of Exodus. Now, they're not mentioned in the book of Exodus by name. But I believe in the context of where he's talking about here and what's happening, that these are probably two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. And if you remember the story of Exodus, of how they opposed Moses, I want to use one word tonight that I think fits the context of what Paul is also telling us that makes the days in which we live challenging and can even make them confusing. It's the word counterfeit. 
Because if you remember the story of the magicians in Pharaoh's court and Moses, when Aaron threw Moses' rod down on the ground, the, ma- the magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to counterfeit that and turn these things into what looked like snakes as well. And then when Aaron uh, used Moses' rod to turn the Nile into blood, they also counterfeited that miracle and it made it look like they could also produce bloody water. And then the Bible went on to say, and when he produced the frogs upon the land, they were able to somehow counterfeit the frog miracle as well. Now they did get to a point where they could no longer counterfeit and they went to Pharaoh and said, this God's more powerful than us because we could counterfeit some of this other stuff. We couldn't counterfeit that. In fact, I believe it was the gnats. You go, well, the gnats, they were that. Yeah, but here's how God made the gnats that plagued Egypt. He took the grains of sand and turned the grains of sand into Egypt into gnats. How'd you like him to do that in Phoenix? There'd be a lot of gnats flowing around if God turned every grain of sand into a gnat. And the magicians in Pharaoh's court could not counterfeit it. Now, here's the point. The Bible teaches that Satan has a counterfeit gospel Satan has a counterfeit righteousness. One day Satan is going to bring a counterfeit Christ onto the scene of this world. Satan is all about counterfeiting. In fact, very important passage of scripture. Let's go back there tonight. We've got 35 minutes. Let's do it. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13, 14, and 15. Paul says to the Corinthians, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will correspond to their actions. In other words, one day they'll be seen for what they really are, not servants of God, but actually ministers for Satan himself. But it won't happen immediately. And because they're such good counterfeiters, they're going to dupe and fool a lot of people, even people within the church. It's the kind of challenging days we live in. See, but all the more reason, I think, why when you study a passage like 2 Timothy 3, if any passage of Scripture should motivate people to get into their Bibles and study it and read it and become part of Bible studies and continue to grow, it would be this. Because instead of discouraging me, all this does is want to motivate me to continue to grow so that I don't succumb to the unique challenges of the days in which I live. So that Jesus Christ one day can say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. So just as Jonas and John Bray's opposed Moses, so these people who have warped minds and are disqualified in the faith also oppose the truth, but they will not go much further, for their foolishness will be obvious to everyone, 
just like it was with Jonas and John Bray. There will come a, po- a point where people will see them for what they really are, but not right away. They will disguise themselves. They will be counterfeiters. And again, the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.13, in the last days, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. And we are living in the midst of a world of deception. And that's why the church needs to be filled with people who are committed to the truth, to learn the truth, to know the truth, to live the truth, so that we can rise above this cloud of deception that exists in the world today. So that we can have a clear-cut path that we know we need to go down and that we can point other people to. That our witness can be as bold as John the Baptist who said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all that you need and all that you're looking for and all that you want in life can be found in Him, Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 10. Timothy, in the first nine verses, I've told you basically who not to attach yourself to. Who to beware of. Who to not associate with. Avoid people like these. But now in verse 10, notice the stark contrast. Now, Timothy, I want you to continue to look for good examples. I want you to attach yourself and associate with the right kind, those who are truly following Christ and following Him from the heart, and use their examples and their life to inspire you and to encourage you. Notice Paul even uses himself. He says in verse 10 to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and oh yes, my endurance, Timothy. You're having a hard time enduring right now. You're having a hard time persevering. You're having a hard time keep on keeping on and not quitting and throwing in the towel. But Timothy, use me even as an example. You know everything that I've went through, and you know that our God was great enough to bring me through everything so that I could endure. And if my God can do that with me, Timothy, he can do that with you. And can I just say, not to give you my whole life story, but if God could bring me through some of the things he's brought me through in my life, he can bring you through those things as well. We have a great God. Amen? Notice Paul goes on to say in verse 11, not only have you known this, and Paul's life was an open book, unlike the charlatans, unlike the deceivers, the counterfeiters who had something to hide, and who was never really up front and out front and out in the open about the way they lived their life, there was always something sort of secretive. They weren't transparent. They weren't open. Paul was just the opposite. His life was an open book for all to see. The good, the bad, the ugly. The scars, the triumphs, whatever. But it was there. And then Paul says to Timothy, verse 11, You've also known very well all the persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and in Lystra. And I endured these persecutions and the Lord delivered me from them all. 
He didn't allow anything that I went through to be the defining moment of my life to defeat me. And I went through some hard things, Timothy. You know. You know because we are this close, Timothy. There's nothing that's happened to me in the last 15, 20 years that you weren't intimately acquainted with. And you saw how God brought me through everything that I went through as the Apostle Paul. And if God could bring me through such great sufferings and trials and tribulations and persecutions, God can do the same thing for you, Timothy. Hang in there. Don't give up. Keep on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he says, then in verse 12, Timothy, also remember something. All who want to live godly, I just want to stop there. It's amazing that the Bible teaches that there will be those who name the name of Christ who really have no desire to be godly. I mean, think about that. That's what what Paul is saying there. He's implying the fact that there are those who say they're a Christian who name the name of Christ but really have no desire to live godly. But Paul says for those who do desire to be godly, You realize, Timothy, that we're going to be persecuted. That's why Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was good. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And his fate was hanging on a Roman cross. And Jesus is basically saying to those who want to follow him, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. Because there's going to be times where living godly and being godly and standing up for God and for godliness in this world in which we live, especially the kind of world that Paul described in the first part of chapter 3, we're going to suffer some persecution for it. Because we're not going to be the most popular people in the world in which we live. Because quite frankly, Paul's painting a picture that the world's going in this direction and Christians should be going in this direction. And sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of conflict if we truly want to live godly. That's why he goes on to tell Timothy, I think in verse 13, look, don't think, Timothy, this is going to get any better, that there's going to come a day where people become so good out of the goodness of their own heart that Christians are never going to have to suffer persecution no matter what season in history they're alive. In fact, Paul's telling Timothy in verse 13, Timothy, you think it's challenging to be a Christian in the days in which we live. If Jesus waits a couple thousand years to come back, I realize I'm adding this here tonight, okay? I'm just, let's just pretend, okay, for a moment. I don't like to do that too often, but let's just pretend. Paul could have very well said to Timothy, what's it going to be like for Christians in 2008? If it's, if it's like it is now, Timothy, for us, what's it going to be like in 2008? That's why then verse 14, another very strong, emphatic contrast you however Timothy you however don't be deceived don't be deceiving here's the answer Timothy here's the culmination of all that I've said up to this point here's what I want to end with Paul saying at this point in the letter 
And this is where I want to end tonight. You, however, must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. Paul is saying there never comes a point, no matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter how committed I've been, no matter how much I know about the Bible, where there comes a point where I don't continue in the things that I know and that I'm convinced about. It is a continual progress forward in Christ. Always. Always. And notice Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, it is essential for us and it will be even more essential for those Christians in 2008 to know what they believe and why they believe it. And that they are not just having convictions up here in their head, but they are living out those convictions every day. That's what Paul says to Timothy in verse 14. You must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. Convinced about. You you have a conviction about. And you must continue, Timothy, to always live out your convictions. Don't give up your convictions. In fact, Timothy, if you ever release your convictions, were they ever really your convictions? Again, let's contrast this with the world today that we live in. There's not a lot of conviction out there today. A lot of confidence about what life is all about and where we came from and where we are and where we're going. And yet God says, I want to give you that confidence as you face life. I want to I build into you these convictions that will help you navigate every season of life, no matter how difficult and how much suffering, how much persecution, how much trial and tribulation, but it really does come down to our own personal convictions based upon our own relationship with Christ and, as I'm going to get to in just a moment, our own relationship with the Bible. We cannot live off of someone else's convictions. We must be encouraged to develop our own convictions and then live them out. Because if there are convictions, then we'll truly live them. If there's someone else's convictions, we may live on them for a while, but they're not going to be lasting. And they will not hold up, especially when things get really, really hard. God wants us to have an anchor. He wants us to have a stability to life. He wants us to have something in our life that is so sure that no matter what the winds and the waves and the storms of life bring to us, there is a stability. And that's why Paul's saying, Timothy, don't abandon your convictions. Continue to live out the things that you've learned and that you have become convinced of. I just want to stop there for a moment tonight and just ask a question, open-ended, between you and the Lord. Because I think it's so important in the days in which we live, folks, because we all know the challenging times that we are living in. We know that if it's not us, that there are a lot of people around us who are searching, looking for answers, looking for something to be confident about. They want to find someone or something to put their confidence in. And they're having a real difficult time finding it. And Jesus Christ is saying, I'll give you something you can be confident about. Where are your convictions tonight? Do you have those abiding convictions of life 
those things that you have become so sure of, that you are so certain of, that you live them out every day, and that no matter what happens in life, you are living upon those convictions. Again, based upon our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the Word of God. Notice he goes on at the end of verse 14 to say, first of all, he says, Timothy, you know who taught you. You know that what I'm telling you is real because you saw the reality of Christ in their lives as they taught you the scriptures from the time you were an infant, which is in the context in verse 15, a verse we're going to get to in just a moment, how from infancy you knew the holy writings. Well, who do... I think he's talking back to 2 Timothy 1.5 where he mentioned Timothy's grandmother and mother. And he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, you saw the reality of their faith. You knew it was real. You knew this wasn't just something that they were telling you that they really didn't believe, that they weren't convinced of, and that they weren't living. They passed on to you their convictions and just hoped and prayed that it, they would become your convictions, Timothy. You know who taught you. Can I just say, one of the ways you and I as the church will make a greater impact in the world in which we live is when they see the reality of our faith in our lives as well, just like Paul is challenging Timothy here back to his grandmother and mother. And then verse 15 and for all of you here tonight who work in early childhood, let me say now is our time to applaud and encourage you. Because one of the questions I've gotten asked over the years as a pastor is, why do we try to teach young children about Jesus and about the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.15, because the Bible teaches that even from infancy, we can begin to learn about the love of Jesus Christ for us. And I applaud those who work in our early childhood department because they're not just babysitting children over there on Sundays. They are teaching those children at a very early age about Jesus Christ. And I think that's biblical. I think that's great. And notice he goes on to say, even from the time you were an early child, you knew that these holy writings were able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. First of all, let's be careful about something. Paul here is not saying that reading the Bible or knowing the Bible brings salvation. Because if that was true, then Satan would be saved. Because Satan knows the Bible better than a lot of Christians in this world today. Just because we know the Bible doesn't mean we're saved, doesn't mean we're spiritual, doesn't mean we're godly. It's allowing the message of the Bible to grip our life. And it's allowing the Bible to point us to the way we get saved, which is clearly, even as he says here at the end of verse 15, only through faith in Christ Jesus. 
You see, reading the Bible and studying the Bible and just knowing the Bible doesn't get somebody saved, but it does tell us that we're a sinner. It does tell us we need a Savior. It does tell us that our Savior loved us enough to die on the cross for us. It does tell us that our Savior rose from the dead. It does tell us that if we simply put our faith and trust in Christ, we can be saved. And if we have faith in that and we trust in what the Bible says and the record that God has given us and the revelation that God has given us, then we will be saved. Because no person, I believe, can be saved apart from the Word of God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But notice something else. He goes past salvation. Because hopefully here tonight... I'm hoping everybody here is a Christian and you're saved. And I realize I'm taking that for granted. But again, let's just say for our study tonight that everybody in here tonight truly is a Christian. You know Christ in a personal way. The Bible wasn't just given to us to lead us to salvation. Notice he goes on to say the Bible is useful. Verse 16. Why is it useful? Well, because every scripture, all scripture, every part of it, is inspired by God. First of all, Paul is putting the foundation on why the Bible is so useful. The reason the Bible is so useful is because it's a supernatural book. Because there is no book like the Bible, because only the Bible has the supernatural power of God given to it. That's what the word inspired means. Literally, the Greek word is theopneustos. It literally means God breathed. It means God gave this book his breath. And when you study the breath of God in the Bible, it is always connected, connected with the power of God, which ties into what the Bible says of itself, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, even into the joints and marrow of the bone. The Word of God is powerful. Why is it powerful? Because it has been God-breathed. God breathed this book. And he gave it to man. And man recorded it. And it is inspired. That's why it's authoritative. That's why it's the truth. That's why I can base my life and my eternal destiny. And I, I can use it in my life. And here's the key point that Paul wants to make as he builds this through chapter 3, starting out talking about the challenging times in which we live, but ending with the Word of God, because here's what he's saying. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for training in righteousness. How to stay right. Anything you and I need, God gave us the Bible. That the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. First of all, anybody in here want to be dedicated to God? Be a man of God, a woman of God? I want, I want to show you something here tonight, remind you of something. According to the Bible, a person cannot be a man of God or a woman of God apart from their relationship to the Word of God. You, 
look throughout the Bible at all those men and women that God said, they are a man of God, they are a woman of God, they are committed to me, they are dedicated to me, they were men and women of the Scriptures, of the Word of God. Again, not just to know it, but to live it. And notice what the Word of God can do for us. We think that the times in which Paul has described is pretty heady stuff and, wow, pretty big challenges ahead. But Paul says, folks, all you and I have to do as Christians is saturate our minds and our hearts and our lives with the Word of God and build our relationship with the Word of God and we will have in the Word of God everything we need to meet every demand of life and ministry as a Christian. Because notice, Paul says two very important things about the Word of God, verse 17. First of all, that as we build our relationship with the Word of God, we may be capable and then equipped. The word capable can be translated complete. It can also be translated fit. I think that that translation or that wording actually fits a little bit better with what Paul's mindset is. Because here's what Paul, I think, is saying. The Word of God can help me as a Christian to become fit as a Christian. To get into spiritual shape. To get toned up spiritually. So that whatever challenges I have to face spiritually, just like if I was physically in shape, I'm more able to meet those challenges physically because I'm physically in shape. If I'm spiritually in shape, then whatever challenges, whatever obstacles, whatever hurdles come my way, I can meet those because I have become fit through my relationship with the Word of God. And then second, the word equipped. A word I would like to use there beyond that word is the word furnished. Paul is simply saying, and the Word of God gives us all the equipment all that we need to be furnished with in order to serve God, minister for Him. Timothy, be the pastor you need to be. Uh, Gal, be the wife and mother you need to be. Be the teacher you need to be. Be the whatever you need to be. It will furnish you and fit you for every demand in life. Everything. There is nothing that God will ever ask of us to be fit for and furnished for that we cannot find in the Word of God to do the job. If a painter who paints for a living went out to paint and didn't take the ladder and the brushes and the paint, it doesn't matter how great of a painter, how how talented of a painter they are, they don't have the equipment, if they're not furnished with what they need to do the job, doesn't matter. And that's why the Bible says of itself, I'll give you both. I'll allow you, say again, going back to an athletic metaphor, I'll, I'll get you fit and in shape, but I'll also provide you the helmet and the shoulder pads and the jersey and the thigh pads and the spikes and everything that you need to go out there on the field and compete and to do it well. I'll give you all the equipment, and I'll fit you as well. What more can we ask for? The Word of God. And that's why Paul 
Though we started out in chapter 3 maybe shaking our heads going, wow, things are only going to get worse? Wow. This is the kind of, of world we live in that God has painted? Wow. How, is I, how can I as a Christian meet the challenges and meet the demands that this world is going to place on me because God chose for me to be alive in 2008. And I think God, as well as Paul, would direct our attention continually back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to the latter part of that chapter and say, Timothy, Jeff, all of us here tonight, it's all about who you associate with and who or what you attach yourself to. If you attach yourself to the Word of God and you associate with godly examples like Paul and like Eunice and Lois, then you're going to be able to endure and you're going to be able to meet any challenge that might come your way. But if you begin to attach yourself to those of low moral character, you begin to be duped and, and you begin to buy into the counterfeits and the lies and the deceptions of Satan and those out there who are even trying to pass themselves off as ministers of righteousness even though they are really working for Satan, then yes, it's going to be very hard to endure. It's going to be very hard to keep on moving forward in the world in which we live. One final place I'd like to take us to tonight that I think sums up what Paul has said in 2 Timothy 3. And next week, Lord willing, if you can come back next week, we will finish up our study in 2 Timothy 4. But if you'd go back tonight as we close to Psalm 1, the very first psalm. Psalm 1 is not only the first psalm, but it's probably my favorite psalm. I think Psalm 1 was strategically placed at the beginning of the book of Psalms because I think it sort of is a summary, is a great foundation for all 149 Psalms that follow it. And the reason I want to take you to Psalm 1 is I hope you will see what I saw once again with the eyes that I saw it with after I read and studied 2 Timothy chapter 3 about my attachment and my associations and how clear that is and how keen that is to my endurance and my perseverance, take all that we talked about tonight and then come back to Psalm 1 and look at Psalm 1 through those eyes and follow along in your Bibles as I read this in closing tonight and then I'm just going to close in prayer. The psalmist writes, how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands and he meditates on his commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time. Its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like wind-driven chaff. 
For this reason the wicked cannot withstand judgment, nor can sinners join the assembly of the godly. Certainly the Lord guards the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. Let's pray. God, I I ask tonight, Father, that you would help us to see how vitally important it is for each of us as Christians to truly never forget the days in which we live. That, Lord, we have to realize every day that we have to bring our A game. The days in which we live are so full of challenges that if we get sloppy in our Christian walk, if we neglect spending time with you and spending time with your people, And spending time in your word, God, this world, with all of its deception and counterfeiters and lack of character, is just going to run us over. And yet, God, you don't want us to shrink from the days in which we live. You want us as the mighty church of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up in all the power of God and be a light in the communities in which you place us. And every day to be Jesus strong and to allow the strength that is only found in Christ to build us up. And Lord, may we also understand how important it is that each one of us rededicates ourselves and recommits ourselves to being people of the Bible. That, Lord, you have given us in this inspired book all the power, all the resources, all that will cause us to become fit and furnished for every demand that we could ever face in this life. And God, if we truly want to live godly and be a man and woman of God, help us, Lord, to be men and women of the book. And God, I also pray here tonight that you would use these folks who come on Tuesday because they're, Lord, Lord, really? They're not the ones that need to hear this. But, Lord, you could use them to reach out to others and to use their life and their conviction and the reality of faith in their life to show other Christians how important it is to become men and women of the book. So that Bible studies like the mine and our small churches and our life groups and the Bible studies in our men and women's ministry and Lord Bible studies all over this town would just be full of people 
because people more and more are realizing how important the Bible is, how essential it is, that it is not an elective that we as a Christian chooses to do or not to do, but it is a required course in your kingdom. So God help us to be men and women of the book and then use our lives to encourage other Christians to become men and women of the book as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.